previously on Hacker Valley Blue. We're doing the very first season of Hacker Valley Blue. This season specifically, we're going to be highlighting threat intelligence. I was practicing how to write things simply because I just want them to have the easiest experience possible. I'm so sick of um, reading lab manuals or, or test preps where they complicate the, the problem like in a million times more complicated than it needs to be. What was that, that discovery period like for you? This was interesting because in a way I feel like I was born to do what I do now. This research skill, like I can dig something from maybe just a really small detail. It's just it's like hunting for information. So yeah, so yeah. like being a detective. Exactly, yeah. It's like being a detective without being in the law, law enforcement. This is the Hacker Valley Studio podcast exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. This Hacker Valley Blue episode is sponsored by RiskIQ. There are so many researchers and analysts that I know and trust that use RiskIQ's platform. Not to mention I have personally leaned on RiskIQ while leading threat intelligence capabilities in my career. RiskIQ has been crawling and absorbing the internet so practitioners can leverage that data during investigations and research. If you want to learn more about RiskIQ, visit RiskIQ.com or jump down into the show notes for more information. In this episode of Hacker Valley Blue, we chat with our good friend, John DiMaggio. We dive deep on ransomware, look at threat research, and the hot button of attribution. Without further ado, let's get into this excellent episode. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again here in the studio, repping Hacker Valley blue season. And today we've brought in someone that chases bad guys. We have John DiMaggio. He is a senior threat intelligence analyst at Symantec, also a close friend of Hacker Valley Studio. John, such a pleasure to have you and welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, guys. I'm really glad to be here. I've uh, been looking forward to this. This is uh, great stuff. So thank you very much for taking the time to uh, talk to me today. Yeah, absolutely, John. We actually met moments before we stepped out on stage at RSA, the last time that a lot of people got together, actually. And so uh, it was great to meet with you. We had a great back and forth on stage. For the folks out there that don't know who you are just yet, we'd love to hear a little bit of your background and what you're doing today. Sure, absolutely. So, you know, I, to be honest, I started my, out my career many, many years ago as an engineer, but I was very fortunate being in the right places at the right times. You know, I, I got really involved with defending against, you know, nation state attacks. It was sort of the perfect time because it was the early 2000s when, you know, we just started to see a lot of nation states that were, you know, once only targeting governments that were now really hitting the commercial world and the financial industry. So I got to sort of come up with a lot of those groups that were just starting out and we've kind of done the dance for years. And, you know, I, I've learned a lot and grew into an expert just from that experience, you know, and now it's been, I think 13 or 14 years I've been doing it, but uh, it's been a long time. And I think that that while, while it's changed, 
quite a bit that that sort of background and experience is something that has sort of given me insight that a lot of analysts may not have just coming in in the door. So, you know, I've really spent my career trying to not just do that, but also to teach and to share that knowledge and to, to help other analysts and to improve sort of our defenses and our defense posture out there. I came to Symantec in 2014. Prior to that, I did a lot of government work. So I, I switched to just pure commercial in 2014. And again, working with a lot of the financial organizations and commercial organizations that were being targeted, not just by China, but you know, today there's, there's so many nations that you have to defend against, Iran, China, Russia. It's something new every day. And you know, the smarter we get, the more that the bad guys sort of increase their breadth of knowledge. And you know, over the past couple of years, I've really sort of transitioned. While I, I still, my specialty is still nation states, I've really gotten heavily involved with enterprise ransomware. The main reason for that is you know, they've really adopted the tactics that traditionally were only used by governments that had the resources to do those sort of elaborate and, and organized attacks. You know, between the two, it definitely keeps me busy and keeps life interesting. You said something that I believe triggers a lot of people, and that is the term nation state. We hear so much about that, like a nation state performs an attack. And I think sometimes that term is somewhat elusive. Like, what does that really mean? How would you describe a nation state in the sense of chasing bad guys? Yeah, so that's actually a great question. So at the end of the day, it's done a little bit differently by each nation. So some have government groups, some have military units, others hire contractors. But at the end of the day, they're very organized, objective-oriented elements where they conduct long-term attacks. And these attacks differ from anything else that's out there because you know it's not just one piece of the pie that they're after. Again, they usually have multiple objectives. So you have to defend against them very differently, meaning a traditional threat, if you identify it, you can mitigate it and often they'll go away. But with you know these sort of advanced groups, you, you can't do that because if you close one door, they're going to attempt to come in through another. So with nation states, they have a, a much larger tool set and they have much greater resources. And more importantly, the biggest difference is they have so much more time. They will wait and they will conduct these attacks. They're very patient. For example, you know, when North Korea was attacking banks heavily with compromising the local implementation of SWIFT, they were spending up to a year prior performing reconnaissance and just beginning these attacks. And it's actually really ironic that, you know, some of their more well-known and publicized attacks, they spent a year learning the environment and increasing their privileges and gaining their foothold on a network just to screw it up by having a misspelling in one of the names of the bank transfers. So there's lots of cool little interesting stories like that out there. But in short, the biggest difference or the biggest thing really that defines these groups, obviously, is the fact that they have the backing of a, of, a, of a foreign government. But more specifically, it's sort of how they conduct attacks that makes them such a, a different animal than your, your normal day-to-day cyber criminals that we face. So one thing that is interesting to, to note is I've been in several different organizations leading threat intelligence and really based on their threat profile changed my day-to-day drastically. So you'll have companies that are definitely being targeted by nation states. And that is a much different job than criminal hackers that are, you know, looking at the company as like a, a target of, of interest just because it's there. What do you think is the biggest difference between the threat intelligence teams that are having to combat nation states versus the, the folks that aren't necessarily having to worry about that? 
Well, you know what? To, just to be completely honest, not everybody gets it. It's gotten a lot better, but you know, I've spent a lot of my career arguing and trying to convince individuals, hey, this isn't just your regular attacker. This is a foreign government, and you know, you could be a mom and a pop shop, or you could be, you know, a multi-billion-dollar Fortune 500 company. But there's many, many different scopes and levels of targeting that, that governments go after, and a lot of times it's the smaller companies they target in order to do compromise that relationship that they have with bigger companies. And, you know, I, I really think that the ones that struggle often, it's just sort of the mindset of convincing people that, hey, you know what, this is not just a cyber criminal. This is not someone that you can just rely on automated defenses. The biggest differentiator in, in nation state attacks that defending them that makes defenders successful is the human element. And I'm not saying that there's not lots of good tools and, and vendors and appliances and different elements of security that are that are very useful in defending. But the one key ingredient that you must have in order for that to all work is the human being behind it. And that's not the, the same for a lot of your cybercrime. A lot of cybercrime you can actually have mitigated with automation. But nation state attacks, you need a person. They're going to come back. They are, you know, they call them APT for a ris- reason because they are persistent. You know, I, I worked with one company and over a year and a half period, they had 14 different campaigns where their various business units were, were targeted. And they really got it. And one of the reasons that we were successful, and we know we kept them out because they kept coming back. But one of the reasons of that is just that they really seem to understand and were willing to to dedicate you know human resources to really following and hunting every day to find it. And then I think the next, the second biggest thing that folks really got to get you know in their head these days is you can't just look at the malicious activity anymore. You have to look at your legitimate activity. You've got to look at your administrative tools that are being used on your network, your administrative accounts that are being used on your network. And, you know, that might be mundane and not fun, but the truth is that's one of the strongest ways to identify these guys because the biggest change we've had over the past three or four years here is bad guys, you know, really using discipline when it comes to using their custom tool sets and relying on what's available already in the environment or bringing in publicly available tools just to sort of go in under the radar and also protect themselves so that if they are identified, can't use it in evidence for attribution. You brought up some points about living off the land and looking at legitimate type of traffic that you might already see on your your network or environment, just because that's what attackers are using now to pivot around and whatnot. Are there any insights that organizations could leverage that could benefit them from outsmarting the nation state attacker maybe maybe they have more insight about their environment and they're able to use that information to their advantage what are some things that you've helped organizations with that you're like you can use this and you already have it well you know one of those things is this again isn't exciting but it's extremely effective is well two there's two parts to this one and this is going to be really basic separation of permissions and policies not letting any uh, one individual have too many keys to the kingdom. But the second piece is establishing a baseline of that administrative behavior and auditing it regularly. You know, looking at everything is, let's be honest, that's not realistic. But if you have a baseline, and again, I'm talking about just your administrative roles and your administrative tool use, 
issues, that's maybe tops 15, 20% tops that any organization is going to have. So, you know, really establishing that baseline and auditing that on a regular basis is going to help you to find those anomalies. And it's not just with the nation state activity anymore that this would help find your enterprise ransomware, which is huge, a huge problem right now. Doing that is also one of the strongest ways to identify that activity. We just did some great research recently at Symantec where we looked at some of the things that haven't really been looked at when it comes to those attackers. And one of those elements was looking at how long they spend on a network before they actually execute the attacks. And we actually found, I expected it to be, you know, maybe days, maybe a week tops, we actually found that some of the the more advanced and elaborate, well-known and publicized groups were spending up to three weeks on networks before they actually executed the ransomware payload. So the same go goes, like I said, for nation states. They're blending in. They're trying to look like your normal activity. So by auditing that and knowing your baseline, that's going to give you an advantage that most tools and automation can't. Obviously, you can use those to help you with this. My point is that a lot of us, a lot of the organizations aren't looking at that element. They're just looking at, at the bad stuff. And we're just not in an, in an area anymore where you can wait for things to pop up on the screen to tell you that it's bad. Not when it comes to advanced attacks anyway. One thing that comes to mind when you think about ransomware is the first thing that pops in my mind, at least, is money. Have you done any research into the economics of, of ransomware, sort of the trends, where is it going? Because now you're, you're getting to a place where Nation states are looking at ransomware because it's actually effective at getting money. So have you done any research there? Yeah, absolutely. And actually, that's that's it's a great question because we've just witnessed, you know, over the past maybe two, three months, a huge change in trends for enterprise ransomware attackers. Traditionally, over the past several years, most of the attacks that we see are against, you know, mid-sized organizations, city and local governments, hospitals, healthcare, organizations such as that. And when they evaluate those enterprises, you know, they, they decide on how much to ask for ransom because they want Want the victim to pay. So, you know, with most of those organizations, those ransom would be in the hundreds of thousands. And while that's still a lot of money, the trend that we've seen is to now target some of your Fortune 500 organizations and not ask for hundreds of thousands, but to ask for millions of dollars in ransom. And that seems to be the biggest trend in the financial aspect. But there's something even worse. They are finding multiple ways to get you to pay. For example, there's an organization out there that's called Maze Ransomware. And this group actually does ransomware uh, as a service, and they have affiliates that work with them. And when they go and attack, not only do they ask you to pay ransom, but then they ask you to pay them to not distribute your data. So they're not only encrypting your data, they're actually making copies of it and threatening to post it. And if you take too long, they go and start posting via social media, trying to alert your customer base that they have the data and this is happening in order to sort of pressure the organization to pay. So it's no longer just, you know, dealing with with having your data taken. It's really getting nasty out there and what these organized groups are doing to steal money. And the problem is, is even when they use these affiliates and it's ransomware as a service, it's not where they're just anybody can just go in there and, and pay and use it. 
they're very selective about who they allow to work with them. And the reason I know that is because you don't see a big difference from one attack to another. They use sort of the same playbook and they're always an advanced professional level of attackers, meaning, you know, they're, they're not amateur hour. So the, the financial aspect, unfortunately, they're asking for larger ransoms and they're going after bigger fish. And I think that's the biggest trend that we've sort of seen over the past several months changing uh, sort of that landscape. It seems like a slippery slope to pay a ransom. You have, on one hand, your data is encrypted. They might have a copy of it. But on the other hand, you want to pay for it and get it back. Is there any side effects and consequences that you've seen for paying a ransom? Like, is there a negative public backlash? Is there a risk of the attacker actually not going away like they promise? What have you seen? That's really an interesting topic because you know, the one thing that I don't think you know we really think or talk about, let's p- put it this way, if no one or if the majority of organizations weren't paying, these guys wouldn't keep doing it. As I mentioned you know, earlier, they're spending you know, weeks on a customer's network sometimes before they actually uh, are able to execute the ransom, the ransomware payload. It's their job. This is what they do every day. You know, the, these enterprise ransomware attackers, you know, there's, there's probably less than, not probably, there are, it's less than, 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 than 20 groups out there that we know of. Now, they dominate the headlines, so it might seem like more, but in the whole grand scheme of things, it's a small number of attackers compared to your day-to-day or, or traditional ransomware attacks. And and they do it and they spend the time and the resources in, in conducting st- these attacks because they know that most organizations are going to pay. And now, like I said, now that they're actually ex- threatening to expose your data, not only do we have to worry about you know not having your data, you got to worry about the embarrassment of a company having uh, everyone in the world you know be able to read their private and confidential data. So I think that by paying, I understand why organizations pay because they're kind of at, at bay to the attacker. And what do you do if you don't have your data and you're going to have everything posted, the the effects can be devastating. So I understand why they pay, but the fact is if we didn't, we would see a huge drop in these groups. They go find a new way to conduct attacks. I mean, look at Evil Corp. You know, they did uh, banking compromises for years, consumer banking compromises for years with Tridex prior to switching to ransomware. And the reason they did that is because they operated like a business. And when their revenue started to drop because law enforcement and defenders started to get really good at catching them and identifying um, updates to their web injects and the Tridex malware, you know, within days of being released, they just weren't in effective and they weren't bringing that income. So they changed their business model and they started to pivot off that and conduct ran- enterprise ransomware attacks. And now they're, you know, one of the, uh, unfortunately, the, the worst groups that are out there. You know, we just saw that very public attack against Garmin, uh, you know, and allegedly they paid and, you know, I get it. But at the same time, everybody who pays, we're sort of encouraging more attacks. One thing that we do in threat intelligence is, is make predictions. We make, we make assessments. We try to figure out what the future looks like and prepare for it before it gets here. And I remember when ransomware was really ramping up. And one of the predictions I actually made was that there was going to be a ransomware that acted like a worm. And then not very long after that, WannaCry happened. And I think everyone's a little bit afraid of that happening again. If you had to make a prediction, how far out do you think we are from having another similar thing like WannaCry? Well, you know, that's hard to say. And the reason I say that is 
when you do use worm, obviously the benefit is that it does, you know, it spreads quickly and it's generally takes a lot of the hands on keyboard of the bad guy to the picture. The problem, just like we saw with WannaCry though, is it can get out of control quickly and have the reverse effect where, you know, it's happening at a mass level and you're not making the income now that you wanted because it's so devastating that you're not reaching those end results or those goals that you want. And you have the entire world working to prevent it and to sort of kill the attack. But it is absolutely, I agree, a huge threat. I think, though, you know, the thing is, the really advanced groups that we have right now, I think they want that level of control sort of that's involved when they go in manually. Because the one difference that you have when you go in manually is you can ensure prior to executing that ransom payload across that enterprise, you can ensure that that environment is staged and ready to go. Because, you know, let's face it, once the world or defenders sort of get their eye on, on your new payload or your new binary, they're going to create defenses to prevent it and signatures and everything else. So that level of control, you lose that when you use a worm. So you're giving sort of that up. But I do agree, we, we might see it again. But if we do, I think it'll be another situation where we see a nation state that's sort of using it, possibly even, you know, as a distraction while they conduct other attacks. So I think it's important to ask, just because when you hear about ransomware and nation state it actually sounds kind of cool like it sounds like man how how would i be a nation state are, are there any looking at your career are there any parallels of career paths that you can go down to actually be able to build these types of things yeah you know what it's uh there's a couple ways you know it used to be the only way to do it was government or military and pr- primarily government but that again as i mentioned earlier that sort of changed because you know those same groups that used to target the government now target you know all of these commercial organizations so what you can do is getting obviously you have to start as being a security analyst but you can really pivot by all this information is now public all these vendors are reporting all every detail of these attacks you know one of the ways that you know I've seen a lot of individuals get into this field is that they're already a good security analyst and they use that baseline and that skill and they do research and they read and they learn about how other organizations are tracking this. And then they start doing that on their own with you know almost open source information. Thought leadership is huge, blogging about it, talking about it. You know, years ago I just on my own, you know, I just started doing a blog just because I enjoyed I was doing the, the work, but I wasn't doing it to where I could talk about it. So I just wanted to write and get get stuff out there. And, you know, that's actually what helped me get a job, you know, in Semantic was by doing that, by sort of researching and really reading all the ton of information out there in open source about how to track and, and find these adversaries, pivoting on that, finding your own little angle on that, and then writing or talking about it, whether that's your job or not. You know, think it'll get one, it'll get the attention, I think, of other organizations, but two, you know, really show your employer that you've got a sort of a knack for it. I also think that there's organizations now that are sort of they're trying, we're really not there yet, that are trying to sort of teach that that vertical. Because it is, again, it is a, it's a different mindset than being a traditional security analyst. So there are courses out there. There are different ways that you can do it besides, you know, just going through a government or the military. There's not one path. It's not like you can just go to a university and, and say, I want to be a nation state threat hunter. But there are more and more books that are coming out on that by folks that are experts in the field. 
that, you know, doing that reading and studying up on that and then practicing on your own will help you to do that. And that's the best part of this. You don't need an organization's data to get the feel for this. All the indicators are released publicly. There's just so much open source information that you can sit in your living room and really touch and feel this and create your own end result. Get on LinkedIn, write posts about it, get involved in groups. Are there any paths that one can go down to actually be an APT, like more on the attacking side? Like that also sounds pretty cool too, to not only catch the attacker, but even be the attacker. Are there any things that enable someone to be a part of a nation state? You know what? There are, but that is primarily you have to work for the government to get to that level. And you got to be really good at what you do. So there's not a, an easy path to do it that I could say you can do you know, A and B and you'll get to C. But really, the only way to do that is to work for the government because you could be the greatest hacker in the world, but that won't make you an expert in computer network exploitation. You have to, one, have the legal side behind you to do it so you don't end up in jail. But two, you have to sort of have all of the resources that come with working for government. So I guess what I would say is that that's the sort of thing that you're interested in. You know, you, you really want to get out there and, and look at the uh, job ads at intelligence agencies and get your foot in the door as a security analyst, you know, and make it known that that's the direction you want to go and, and try to work in that field. Unfortunately, it's still not easy, whether it's on the uh, offensive side or on the defensive side. It's not the easiest thing to get into, you know, the, the nation state element of protecting or executing at that level because there's not a, a clear path for it. And you sort of have to have a little bit of luck and a lot of desire and a lot of skill. But like anything, I think if you really put your, your mind to it and you spend your time understanding and communicating your understanding of it and, and kind of making that brand for yourself, you're, you can absolutely get into those roles. It, just, it takes a lot, of, a lot of time in networking and, and being in the right place at the right time. Well said, well said. When we were on stage together at RSA, we had a very lively conversation about attribution. And attribution is obviously really important for your research and all the stuff that you do. What tips would you have for the practitioners out there that are dealing with attribution, whether they're being asked to attribute an attack to someone or they're struggling with even where to start. What is some advice you'd have for those folks? Well, Chris, you just asked about a topic that is near and dear to my heart. Uh, so, <laughs> I know I did. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, attribution is something that, in my opinion, we as an industry right now don't do well. And the reason of that is, is we don't look at it as a solid analytical practice. There's not strict guidelines that define how to do it. And what happens is, because we are humans, we become opinion-oriented and we make assumptions. You really need to have an analytical model where you come up with a theory and you have to defend that theory and provide evidence before you make a public statement. You can't just go out there and say, okay, well, I think that it was China because we hear about China in the news all the time. You know, there was a, an attack involving Russia a number of years ago where they specifically put Chinese APT binaries into the attack so that the attribution would be incorrect. And it was publicly, at, you know, the first attribution reports were wrong because of that. You know, so between false flags and sort of the human being aspect where we make assumptions or the lack of a structure and a model to do attribution, 
really sets us up, unfortunately, to not do it very well. So the best way I could say to move forward when you do attribution, you can think what you want. You can talk to your friends and your colleagues about it however you want. But if you're going to write or state it publicly, back it up with evidence. And, you know, we really live in a take my word for it attribution world. You know, as vendors, we do it all the time, you know, and a lot of times it's because we can't obviously put out customer data. But at the end of the day, if you're going to put out attribution, if you want me to take that as as gospel, I really need to see the evidence behind it. But even if you're not going to share the evidence, if you only make theories that can be backed by evidence before you make those statements, you're always going to be able to defend it. And you're more than times than not, you're going to be correct. And the worst part about poor attribution is you can never take it back. You put out a report publicly and you state that a country A did, you know, attack B and you're wrong. You can go out there and correct it after the fact, but there's still people that are going to have read it and they're going to have made their attribution about it after the fact, or they're going to have analysts that aren't, you know, experts in nation state activity that have read that report and remember element to it. And, and it just, it's like a domino effect. So the best way to not make bad attribution is to not make it at all unless you have the evidence behind it that you can back it up with. One thing that we think about when we think about attribution and actually intelligence at all is bias. And we've talked to a few people on this season already about bias and the the role that it plays for analysts. Have you struggled with bias and and what are some ways that you've kind of overcome those mindsets? Absolutely. You could be the the greatest analyst in the world and you're still, because it's, you know, that you see it every day and you live it every day, you know, you have to really monitor yourself because you're going to just be drawn. It's human nature nature to have an opinion on something and to think that it's something prior to actually having the evidence behind it. But I really strongly think that if, if you're an organization and you have threat intelligence team, that when you do attribution, you know, you should have a phase of that where you have to sort of one, you know, have a theory or multiple theories Two, pick your top theory and have evidence to back it up. But then three, take an hour, sit down with your peers, defend that, have them try to poke holes in that. You know, that's something that we do at Symantec. And and I think that for everybody, you know, that that's really helped us to not go down, you know, the wrong path too often because it forces you to have evidence to support your theories. It prevents you from just having an opinion that's going to influence what you're getting ready to state publicly. So having a a consistent, repeatable model like that, that forces you to defend and back your claims is the best way to remove that bias from attribution. One of the things that we've been asking a few of the guests also and I would love to get your opinion on it, but play along. What would it take <laughs> to create an unhackable device or application? Well, and we'll call it the imaginary world because that's like talking about the, the Titanic world. being <laughs> unsinkable. But you know what? In this scenario, I think the, the only way you could do it really is to absolutely limit resources to it. Primarily, let's just talk about a specific unique system that holds data. If you don't want it to be hackable, the best way to defend it is to remove you know, online access to it, You know, remove internet connections to it. That's obviously there's ways around that. Uh, we've heard about organizations that have had uh, private systems compromised through air gap technology, or you know, heck, we've even seen these, heard these stories, and seen movies, you know, where we hear about governments that go and drop USB keys outside and around, uh, you know, military bases just 
they can uh, you know execute compromise in the hopes that someone's going to plug something into one of those systems. So I, I think that's the the best way to do it. However, or, or, or to at least limit the possibility of being hacked is to either remove the connection to, to the public internet and or limit to very specific destinations of where data can come in and out and harden those systems, enclave those systems, use various boundaries and network defenses and parameters to separate them from any other system or operational aspects within your element. You know, don't have corporate networks touch your operational pieces or things that implement your secret sauce. You know, that's really the best way to secure and and sort of protect that data or those systems. So in the scenario we were asking about how to make that hackable, even that would honestly, whether it's real life or whether it's a pretend scenario, that that would be my answer to both. And at the end of the day, at best, you're going to significantly reduce the risk of that happening. Bravo. Bravo. That's outstanding. <laughs> Thank you. One thing I wanted to ask you is you have a lot of data that's bottled up in your brain, whether it's because you're able to focus on long form reports or just your, your curiosity or just how your brain works. We'd love to hear a little bit about how you mentally organize information and how you're able to just kind of like recall it on a dime. Did you do any additional learnings? Have you done any meta learning courses or anything like that? And Or is this just all natural? No. Well, the first piece of this is, you know, I, as I mentioned before, I was sort of, I started out as an engineer and this was my passion. I, I loved the work. It's, you know, I, I won the lottery tomorrow. I would still do it because it's, I, I, I enjoy and love what I do. Wow. You know, it's my, it was, like I said, it was my hobby before I got paid do it because uh, it, was, it was just a lot of organizations didn't see the value in it early on. But, you know, to really answer your question is, you know, that sort of curiosity and passion towards really digging into solving a puzzle, which is what this is, you know, the nation state attacks and these highly targeted attacks are the most interesting because they're so big and there's so many pieces to it. So by sort of just constantly being curious and digging in on that, you know, one really gives you the mindset and the constant repetitive pattern in, in, in research that help you to, to find the breadcrumbs that allow you to sort of build out that bigger picture. But everybody's going to do it differently. But, you know, there's a couple things. For me, I'm very visual. So I like to create connection diagrams that sort of build things out, show me the different aspects of the tax, show me the different areas of victimology. You know, I, I like to visually be able to see that and then go back and click and see my notes. And, you know, there's tools that have a cost. There's other ones that, you know, you can use that are, that are low cost or free to do that. You know, there's other people though, like most of the guys on my team are opposite. I love the visual aspect. There's other guys though that wanted to, you know, write everything down. And then there's some people that just remember everything. I honestly remember a lot because I love what I do so much. However, like I said, if you, you if I had to go back and give you the details to something that I did three or four years ago, I'd remember all the high level stuff. But you know, I'd still need a way to go back and one, make sure that I'm remembering things correctly. But two, you know, go and get the very minute details of that. And I, you know, whether you have a visual or or a written record of it, that's the most important things. And for whatever reason, analysts seem to hate documenting their work. So you've got to document it. That's the most important thing. And, you know, and I'll say that from a threat intelligence perspective, you can have the greatest analyst working for you, but if everything is just in their head the day that they leave, so does all that information. So you've got to have analysts documented. It's got to be a process that's repeatable. Again, you know, how you chase bad guys can be different in every investigation, but the main elements sort of documenting your findings and defending your attribution and, you know, all of that type of thing, you can absolutely make repeatable. 
repeatable as you go from one day to the next. And I guess the next thing would be productivity. You asked me if there's things you do, you know, I'm constantly looking for ways to be more productive and to keep fine tuning my mind to sort of stay on task when I work. And obviously, obviously it's not specific to just, you know, threat intelligence. You could do that for anything, but you know, that's something that I'm constantly working on to sort of make myself more efficient and improve. But it's something where I've gotten a lot of benefit for the small investment that it takes to do that, you know, every week. You know, you mentioned documentation. Chris always talks about the second layer to that, which is communication. So you've documented your findings and now you have to communicate them. And in order for anyone to receive a message that that communication has to be clear, concise, and even sometimes interesting. What are your thought process and philosophies on communicating the documentation and the products that you've actually developed over time with threat intelligence? Well, now here's where I might be a little bit biased because that is where I differ from a lot of analysts, like I said, don't like to document things. I love to write and I love to talk. Anything, especially about this topic, you know, it's like I said, I just, it's what gets me up in the morning. But, you know, because it's, I know that's not the norm, but you're, you know, you got to get yourself the zone where you're comfortable in. There was a time where I never went out and did, you know, public talks or conferences you know, and I had to push myself to get outside of that bubble and just start applying to, to various conferences or getting up in front of customers. And, you know, public speaking scares, scares people to death. And it doesn't have to be your thing. You know, it can be in just writing and, and, and detailing those things. But you really have to dive into that. And whether it's writing it down or whether it's talking, at the end of the day, when we're talking about targeted attacks, you're telling a story. It doesn't always have to be all the fine technical details. One of the reasons I've at least in my career, had so much success is because I'm able to tell it as a story that makes it interesting that doesn't always have all those technical details. Now, you have to be able to still communicate that, and, and that's part of the investigation. It's part of the job. But the fact is that most people want to hear the cool story behind it, and there are so many cool stories behind these type of attacks. You know, Whether it's an awesome win, it, defeating a really creative attacker, or whether it's a lesson learned from a really creative attacker, at the end of the day, it's very interesting. And I think that we fall into a trap where we just, because we look at it every day, we think it's the norm. And the fact is, is, is chasing, whether it's a nation state ransomware guy or, or a very advanced cyber criminal that's conducting targeted attacks, at the end of the day, you know, that's a very small piece of the threat landscape. And it's really not the norm. And there are so many interesting details uh, of that. You just got to jump in there and, and just start talking about it and writing about it and get out of your comfortable, the zone where you're comfortable in and you'll become comfortable in it. You'll find yourself to where you're really good at it. And you know, you constantly have to reinvent your process and you have to constantly try and stay fresh and not fall into the mindsets and be self uh, mindsets and be constantly self-aware just as much, you know, effort has to go into that as does being a strong and productive analyst. But if you can do that, you're going to be at the top of your field. You know, you're going to have people that want to listen to you because the stories are cool and they can just tell that you love talking about it. And, you know, I think that's really what, what happens, unfortunately, is sometimes we just get used to the day-to-day -day and it becomes just the job. And once that happens, you need to find something else that's going to get you up every day and get you excited about your work. Because in these type of attacks, you really have to have the people that are just extremely passionate
pushing it and chasing that down every day. The people that are not waiting for something to tell them there's been an attack, but they want to get up and they want to go find it. They want to go hunt for it. Matter of the people that spend their weekends looking for stuff on the internet because they love it so much outside of their job. You know, there are a lot of <laughs> analysts out there that are like that. And, and you need to find that niche for yourself. But I really think that's the best and most effective way to do that is by finding ways to constantly reinvent yourself and to keep yourself challenged. John, that was incredible. It's all about the stories. And if you get good at storytelling, you will definitely make it to the top of threat intelligence. I want to just say thank you so much for hopping on the mics with us from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you for that. And if anybody wants to stay up to date with you, your research, what are the best ways that people can do that? Sure. Symantec is is part of a company called Broadcom. Broadcom has a uh, threat intelligence feed for all of our our Symantec work. So my team does. We post, uh, you know, not everything obviously, but we post a lot of our research on that forum. So you know, if you go to Symantec's threat intelligence feed on, on Broadcom's website, that's really where you can see all of our research. We also use social media to discuss that and to share whenever we do post new reports or blogs. And then the team that I'm on, you know, we're constantly doing um, thought leadership. So, you know, we're doing conferences and we're getting out there and talking about things, you know, and that's another way. But at the end of the day, you know, we're on LinkedIn and you can always reach out and you can always ask me and a number of my, my peers love to share and love to sort of help out other analysts and other organizations. So a lot of times all it, requ- it requires is asking. But to answer your question, following our threat intelligence feed and our social media is probably the easiest way to keep up with our latest work and our, and our most recent findings and research. Great. We will definitely put that in the show notes if anyone wants to follow along. And again, John, thank you so much for coming on the show and chatting with us. And we'll see everyone next time. 